On today's episode of the London Lyceum, Brandon and I actually have the chance to sit down in Dr. Benjamin Quinn's very own office, and we ask him about Augustine, his life as the man, and also his ideas as the thinker. We discuss everything from if he's a Platonist, to what that means, to how he became a Christian, to why he is someone that Baptists and non-Baptists and everyone in between should be uh, really engaging. So it it was a really great conversation. We had a great time, and uh, we know that you're going to really enjoy this conversation ahead. I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your other host, Brandon Askew. And we're the podcast that hopes to encourage deep and clear thinking, especially among our Baptist listeners. Today we have a very special episode with Dr. Benjamin Quinn. Uh, this is our first episode that we've actually been able to interview a guest in person. So I think this adds a little bit of a layer to the personality of the conversation, as well as the information we'll be able to learn from Dr. Quinn. Now, before I start asking questions to Dr. Quinn, I want to let we're going to talk to him about Augustine. We're going to talk to him about uh, Augustine's theology, about uh, his understanding of the scriptures. And before we get there, I do want to know, Dr. Quinn, can you introduce us to your to our listeners to kind of give them a little context of, of who you are for those who may not know who you are? Yeah. Well, thank you guys for having me on. It's really an honor. I know you've had quite the uh, star-studded lineup, uh, Nathan Finn notwithstanding, but that's the <laughs> um, So I'm Benjamin Quinn. I'm originally from North Mississippi. I uh, married my junior high sweetheart 15 years ago, so we just celebrated, or we're in, right now celebrating 15 years. I uh, just came back from our, our trip together for that. And I came to, I went to Union University for undergraduate and studied Bible, did biblical studies there. Uh, then to Southeastern for seminary, did an MDiv and THM here, uh, MDiv in, in Christian ministry and a THM in Christian ethics, which is what brought me to Southeastern to start with, and then did PhD overseas in theology uh, through the University of Bristol, Trinity College, University of Bristol, focusing on Augustine, um, specifically his understanding of the doctrine of wisdom. So sapientia in Augustine was my focus and still very much a key interest for me. So apparently I've been saying that word wrong for a very long time. Which, sapientia? Yeah. How, how have you said it? I thought sapiential or something like that. Sapiential? Uh, I don't well, know. what matters, Jordan, is that you said Augustine's name right. You didn't say Augustine, <laughs> which is a city in Florida. It's Augustine. Yeah. So we'll, we'll stick with that. Uh, good deal. So I guess I might as well ask you what um, really led you to become interested in Augustine? Yeah, so I had to dig a little more into my own background to answer that and to really be quite personal about that. So growing up in Mississippi, um, you've heard me share a little bit of this, but it wasn't the best of all educational possible worlds. Uh, In fact, maybe (laughs) among the worst of educational possible worlds in terms of education as uh, information. Education is far more than that. In fact, I was just telling someone today um, the school that I went to was a, a public school there in Mississippi. My brother is now the, the principal of that high school. The environment itself was fantastic, and I was formed very deeply and very well, I think, in that environment for a variety of reasons. Um, and that's a big part of education. But in terms of just the opportunity for learning, being challenged to think critically, that, that really wasn't there so much. At the same time, as a teenager, around, around 14 years old, I made sort of a public commitment to ministry of some sort, however I could articulate that at that age. And I knew that that was the direction that the Lord had for me. And so by the time I get to college, I end up at Union University. I went to junior college for a couple of years, and I transferred to Union. 
And for the first time in my life, I'm meeting people who are intellectually brilliant and who love Jesus with their heart. And I had met people up to that point who some of whom were really, really smart, but didn't lo- didn't know anything about Jesus or didn't care about Jesus. Or other people who lo- really did love the Lord with their heart, but there was no connection with the mind, the mm-hmm. life of the mind. And for the first time, I'm coming into contact with people who uh, who really put both of those together. Well, at that same time, in that first semester at Union, I'm taking my first church history course ever and learning a ton. And I was I think I spent half the semester angry at teachers before because I'm like, like I learned about Martin Luther as a 19, 20 year old. I'd never heard the mm. story of yeah. the 95 theses. And I, I was just furious that no one had ever shared this with me. One of the assignments in that course was go find any figure from church history, read X number of pages from any part of their writings, and then write a summary. And in God's providence, I picked Augustine. I don't really know why I did, but I picked Augustine. I grabbed his confessions, and I read, I don't know, probably 30 or 40 pages of his confessions. And I'm I'm confident I didn't understand most of what I read. But what what I remember distinctly coming away from probably the most difficult semester of all of my own education for personal reasons, for just trying to figure out this, what, what was the, for the first time sort of difficult academic life for me, learning a language for the first time. There's so many things that were going on in my life at the moment. But I'm, I'm reading Augustine, and two things are clear to me at the same time. He, too, is brilliant. There's something extremely, remarkably brilliant about this man. And he maybe loves Jesus more than anyone that I've ever met. Mm-hmm. And you can, all of that comes through in his writing. And I never forgot that. So I finished that assignment and then kind of put that away, tuck it in the back of my mind, and then come back eight, nine years later, however long it was, and it's time to spend four years of my life writing one really long dissertation. And I thought, if I want to spend that much time learning from one person, what is wisdom and what does it do? Who, who do I want to learn that from? And I thought something about Augustine was very attractive to me. And so I went back to him and discovered only after the fact that, to my knowledge anyway, no theologian in history speaks more about wisdom than Augustine Mm -hmm. does. And when we think about Augustine, uh, we don't typically gravitate first to that concept or that word. uh, But I don't think there's anyone in in all of theological history that talks more about wisdom than Augustine does. That's fascinating. Yeah, it is. So if you can, just take a, a couple minutes and just tell us about Augustine the man and if if possible, maybe a little bit about his conversion story, because he's got a neat conversion story I think a lot of people yeah. would appreciate. Yeah, so Augustine, um, gosh, there's so many things to share. I'll, I'll skip a rock across the top as best I can. But So Augustine grows up in, in North Africa, so even though he's heavily influenced with sort of, he has sort of a Roman name, but he's uh, he's North African by birth. He's He's born into a half-Christian home, so his mother Monica, which Santa Monica, California, is named after her, so Saint Monica. Mm-hmm. Um, is is reading the Psalms over him from birth. His father is is not a Christian, or at least by the end of his life, he at least experiences some type of what we think is a conversion. But he is not a Christian while Augustine is growing up, and he never, um, he doesn't seem to have the greatest relationship with his father. His father seems to be a hard worker, and is somewhat middle class. Um, but they do realize that when Augustine is born, it doesn't take take long for them to discern that he's pretty precocious. He's really uh, very articulate. He grasps concepts well, and he can explain them very well. And of course, at this day and time, so this is 354 is when he's born. He dies in 431. So we're talking uh, middle of the fourth century when he when he comes onto the scene. Um, at this time, what we think of as today the hero athletes of the day, in that day, the heroes of the day are those who can win the day with their tongue, those who can really win with oratory or rhetoric. Um, 
and Augustine is extremely skilled in this early on. So his dad basically leverages his little bit of influence, borrows money, makes sure that Augustine receives the absolute best education possible, and he does, sends him off to the proper schools. And even for a time, uh, Augustine has to come home while his dad figures out how to pay for more school for Augustine. But bottom line is he's extremely well-trained. And in the process, even though he is, he's sort of receiving Christianity a little bit by, through his mom, through his mom, you know, reading psalms to him or talking to him some about the 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 uh, what we would call the catholic faith but that really means the nicene orthodox faith of that day um that's what augustine is receiving but he doesn't accept it he respects it but he doesn't accept it however by the time he's 18 or 19 years old he's extremely well educated and he's really rising in the ranks in terms of uh, of influence possibly even being set up for a career in politics um, he's also already teaching people, so he's moving well into what we would think of today as like a professorship. He's, he's got students who come to train with him. He's frustrated that they don't pay their fees, which we still experience today. <laughs> um, but he also, in this process, he is hungering and hankering for more from life. And he picks up Cicero. So Cicero lived several hundred years before Augustine, but is also one of the greatest orators of history. Um, and he picks up Cicero and reads uh, a book by Cicero called the Hortensius, which we don't have anymore. But in the, Horten- the Hortensius is basically, uh, it's an argument for philosophy. But don't hear in that philosophy the way that we hear it today. It's an argument for the love of wisdom. Hmm. And so even, even early on, and this is still 10 years or so, 10, 11 years before Augustine is properly converted to Christ, but already at that moment he reads the Hortensius, he tells us this in his Confessions, and he says, I'll paraphrase, um, I was lit a flame unto wisdom, whatever it, was, whatever it is and wherever it is, that's what I want. So immediately then he turns to, because of his background, he turns to the scriptures, but he doesn't find them very palatable. He doesn't find them very attractive. In fact, he says, at that time, I read the scriptures, but I found them to be less sophisticated than Tully. And Tully was a short form for Cicero. Hmm. Um, So he then, he jumps into a sort of an extreme late Gnostic sect called the Manichees, or Manichaeism for the time. He jumps into that partly because Manichaeans claimed to have wisdom. Wisdom was a key concept for them. And so he jumps in uh, it, it also is is kind of convenient for him because he has a girlfriend and he wants to con- continue to live for her, live with her, and he can remain sort of on the fringes of this Manichaean community, and not be held too too closely accountable for how he's living. Um, but he's curious, and so he he remains sort of on the fringes of this community for about a decade. Eventually, he meets the leader of that community and thinks, when I meet this leader, that guy will answer all my questions, and he's woefully disappointed. So he, he leaves the Manichaean faith, jumps into skepticism of the day, which even then, skepticism still has a piece of wisdom because um, Socrates had allegedly said that the, the wisest thing that a man can say is to assent to nothing. To actually say he knows nothing is the wisest, most humble thing, which is interesting because it sounds humble, except that it's actually Christian wisdom upside down. Mm. So he's, he's sort of off at this point, um, kind of a, away from much community. He's kind of running away from his mom, Monica, who's a bit of a helicopter mom. <laughs> and uh, she's trying to chase him down, but he leaves under the cover of night to get away from her to go to Milan. In this process, however, he, uh, through all this process, he discovers uh, Ambrose, and he hears the preaching of Ambrose. And while he is a skeptic for this time, he's also still searching. He's hungry. He's looking for meaning in life. And he hears Ambrose preach, and for the first time he hears allegorical preaching, which for him, it opens the Bible up in a brand new way. He'd never heard anyone teach or explain Scripture in this way. He, he struggled with the Christian concepts of God philosophically. But now all of a sudden, for two reasons, one, because of Ambrose's allegorical teaching and preaching, and because he actually did read the books of the Platonists, 
not Plato proper necessarily. It's, it's the Neoplatonist, it's Plotinus, Porphyry, people of that, of that uh, time. And it begins to categorically sort of open up his mindset so that he all of a sudden then actually does see the scriptures afresh. And eventually the great sort of dramatic story of the confessions is that he's kind of at the end of his wit, the end of himself personally, emotionally, spiritually. Um, and he picks up the scriptures, his eyes light on a passage in Romans, which basically says, leave your sin behind. And especially sexual sin, promiscuity was something that he had really wrestled with and had been haunted by. Um, and the moment that that happens, he says, uh, he, he uses this beautiful language of the light of faith um, flooded into his soul. And he said, I need not read anymore. I knew that I'd been converted. Uh, and it was really remarkable, a beautiful, beautiful mm. story. I could t- say a lot more. Yeah, I was going to ask you, there. you know, why Baptists should care to recover him, but I think that was a good enough answer to I think get everybody interested. So. <laughs> Look, if you that. want someone um, who loves Jesus with all of their heart, and with all their head, who's not perfect. I mean, sometimes I think people, I probably am accused of being over-romanticizing of Augustine. That's fair. Uh, but if you want someone who really loves the Lord with their heart and with their head and with their hands and feet, but also head and heart, uh, you're going you're gonna to have a hard time finding many, if any, uh, especially in the West throughout the history of the church, regardless of denomination, regardless of one's tradition or what have you. Um, you're you're going to struggle to find someone who's going to challenge you and, and encourage you more than someone like Augustine. So, so what's your favorite uh, book by Augustine, and what would be if it's a different answer? What would be the one that you would recommend people to start with? Yeah, isn't that like asking you which child is your favorite? <laughs> <laughs> um, I can't say just one because there is. This is this is part of the the diversity of Augustine. He he's not just writing on one or two things, and he's not just writing for one or two reasons. So Augustine mm-hmm. is a pastor. Uh, who also happens to be one of the most, if not the most, I think certainly the most influential theologian in the West and arguably East and West in the history of the church. But he writes for multiple reasons. So let me just hit a few a few, and then give why they, they're important, I think. Um, first would be the confessions. So I think every Christian should read the confessions. Uh, even if one isn't given to more academic kind of conversation, it doesn't matter. If you, if you just want to be encouraged and challenged to think better about the Lord, to articulate prayers better to the Lord, mm. um, and to just walk closer with the Lord, uh, then confessions will do that for you, especially the first ten books. I realize that things get a little weird at the end, but stick with the first ten books. Um, so there's a, there's a deep spirituality there. City of God, for those of us who are thinking about how Christians ought to relate to the culture, City of God is, you know, City of God has, to my understanding, never been out of print. He, he wrote this, this book in the middle of the 410s, right? So about 418, 419, I think. Um, and it's never been out of print. Wow. One of the most influential texts in the history of the world, especially in the West, for, for multiple reasons. And so, so those who might be interested in political engagement, Christian engagement in culture, even, you know, Augustine in that, he, he bequeaths to Christianity a doctrine of providence and a doctrine of eschatology that you may not entirely agree with, but he nevertheless moves the ball down the field for us to think better about those doctrines. Mm-hmm. Um, additionally, I, I would say for seminary students, for example, um, his what's usually called De Doctrina Christiana, it's, it's sometimes translated on Christian doctrine or on Christian teaching. This is uh, basically four chapters. They're called books, but it's four, four chapters, a relatively short book that Augustine writes basically to say, here's how you interpret the Bible, and then here's how you teach the Bible. The first three books, or first three chapters, are on interpretation, and then the last one is on, now here's how you turn it and actually teach it. And I love this because he has pastors in mind 
uh, when he's writing this. It's not just do you understand what the Bible's saying, but can you articulate it mm-hmm. in a way that actually promotes love for God and neighbor in your congregation? Mm-hmm. Um, and then one that's less talked about, but it's one of my favorites, is called his Enchiridion. There's multiple Enchiridions in the history of the church, but Augustine writes one. It's just a word that means handbook. And sometimes it's, it's translated his handbook on faith, hope, and love. And so he had been asked, uh, this is later on in his life, he'd been asked to write a short volume that basically could be given to young converts for discipleship purposes. Basically, mm-hmm. if you had to write, in fact, the way that it's asked in the letter, I forget who sent Augustine this letter, but said, would you write this in short form so it could be put on one scroll, carried under one arm, mm-hmm. <laughs> so that we could then hand this or teach this to our young Christians or to our people who are joining the churches? And, and so what you get is the mature Augustine who is boiling down what he thinks to be most important and then handing it to, in his mind, handing it to young believers. And I think it's fascinating. Uh, it's, it's interesting to see what's, what seems most important to someone like him in a work like that. Mm. Thank you for that. Yeah, I'm going to need to find a copy of that because I haven't read that one. I, rem- I think the con- his Confessions was, might be one of the first books that I read of anyone really in church history. Mm. And I remember being blown away by it, mm. um, by how it just felt like, you know, when you think of people in ancient times, you don't think of them ha- as being extremely relevant. Yeah. to contemporary times, and it seemed like everything he talked about, uh, while it may be you know different, I th- what it, he has that example of the him and his friends in the pear tree, uh, while that might not be in it, you know what all the kids these days are doing. Uh, <laughs> I doubt it. <laughs> so uh, let, let's elaborate on that, Jordan. So the story is that <clears throat> Augustine, as he's reflecting on his own sin, and this is where he gives us in the Confessions the beginnings of his doctrine of sin, which, again, this is Augustine gives us so much for the first time. He gives us a full-throated doctrine of sin in the Christian tradition. And he's reflecting on this pear tree thing where he basically is saying, I was with friends or peers or whatever, and this is in that year when his dad's trying to get money to send him back to school. So he's hanging out. He's basically bored. He's going to get in trouble because he's bored. And he's hanging with the wrong crowd. And they go and steal pears off a pear tree that it doesn't belong to him. And he says, I didn't want the pears. I didn't need the pears. And I didn't even want to, I didn't even want to steal. I just wanted to sin. Mm-hmm. I wanted to sin. And it's penetrating because then the way that he evaluates that in his own soul. And it's one of those books, Confessions, that is. It's one of those books that you feel like is reading you mm-hmm. the whole time. And part you asked me earlier, Brandon, why Augustine. I, if I recall right, in that semester when I first read a handful of those pages, that was one of the sections that I read. And to my great shame, I had an almost identical experience, except it wasn't pears, it was hot dogs. <laughs> so, Jordan, the kids are doing this these days, I suppose. <laughs> Um, I was with some friends. It was in the summertime. We're out of school. We we all hung out at the Y. The, the YMCA was our daycare, basically. Mm-hmm. As long as you just stayed on the premises, you'd be fine. And a handful of us left. We'd been playing ball. We left one day, walk, walked to the convenience store and back. And as we're coming back, one of the guys that I'm with, he points out that there's a refrigerator in this uh, in this little house that we have to pass by. And we all know that there's an old lady who lives in that house by herself, and there's nothing in the world she could do to stop us if we wanted to get anything in the refrigerator. And so we open the fridge, sneak over there, open the fridge, and it's full of hot dogs. For, for whatever reason, I don't know. It's just crammed full of hot dogs. And so we all take a pack of hot dogs. We didn't need a hot dog. I didn't right. want a hot dog. Yeah. I just wanted to participate in the foolishness. Yeah. And I'd completely forgotten about that. This is I'm reading this probably, I don't know, eight, nine years after the fact. And when I read that from Augustine, I was on my knees confessing mm. what an idiot that stole hot dogs yeah. <laughs> thinking I did the exact same thing and I was seeing the doctrine of sin afresh in my own mm. life for the first time um, that it comes alive you yeah know? yeah and 
thinking of you mentioned his on Christian teaching or on Christian doctrine, whichever mm-hmm. it's technically supposed to be translated. I remember reading that and thinking, why didn't why wasn't this included in my preaching classes? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I've had so many different preaching books o- o- over the years, and it seems like most of them say the same thing. Mm-hmm. And then when I came to Augustine, he's saying very different things and super practical. Yeah. You wouldn't think he was as practical as he is, but yeah. I found it extremely beneficial. That, that's true. You know, um, so it's important to mention this. So we're, we're doing this here in December of 2019, and just, what, eight weeks ago, uh, Jamie, Jamie Smith's come out with a new book called On the Road with St. Augustine. I've actually just reviewed that for the Henry Center at Trinity. I don't know when that's going to be posted. But one thing I love about uh, Smith's book and about much of his work um, across the board is that he is he has humanized Augustine in a way that the the academy hasn't done for a very long time, maybe ever. Um, and in in his book on the road with Saint Augustine, if if people have if people who know anything about Augustine have only ever engaged what I think of as the Augustine of ideas, in other words, someone someone has explained to them his view of just war, or his understanding of the Trinity, or his doctrine of providence, or uh, sovereignty, or whatever the case is, and to, to them, Augustine is nothing more than a set of bullet points that either they really agree with or they really disagree with, but there's no humanity in there. Mm-hmm. What Smith's work has done, his trilogy, and then his uh, You Are What You Love, which in those works, he doesn't tell you, he doesn't come right out and say, I'm basically force-feeding you, Augustine. <laughs> but in his On the Road with St. Augustine, he in, in more ways than that, he is kind of giving you that along alongside his own life. Um, and I love that, because now we're starting to see someone that the Academy hasn't actually portrayed very well. And we're seeing someone who really, really does love Jesus deeply. Um, and whether you agree with every one of his final conclusions or not, you, you at least, and this is back to your Baptist question, Brandon, you, you can at least, or any Christian can at least find deep solidarity and fellowship, yeah. I think, with someone who just really loves Christ. Yeah. yeah. Well, not to completely go against what we just said, but I am interested in his ideas. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. yeah. No, that's fair. Right, let's engage those ideas. But let's do so recognizing that there is a yep. really remarkable human being behind them. Yeah. And we could say that about any figure from yeah. history, but especially, I think, Augustine. Yeah. So when it comes to Augustine, I mean, I feel like really more than most figures, he's got his hands in so many different things. So there are so many different areas that I think we could ask mm-hmm. or talk about when it comes to Augustine's theology or philosophy. Like you mentioned, Just War. Honestly, I don't really have much knowledge in that kind of area, so I'm not super interested in asking that question. Uh, <laughs> I mean, we'll save that one for Dr. Ashford. He's yeah, that's right. now on war, so we can yeah. that one. Um, but I guess for me, I, I mean, I'm curious. When it, I know we were just talking about this before we started the show, and I feel like I want to ask you. So when it comes to Augustine, I know in his City of God, he mentioned, he has, I don't know how many chapters or books um, on on Platonism, and how he kind of recognizes this, I guess, whatever he defines Platonism as, it's it's the most um, Christian philosophy that's out there, uh, whereas all these other philosophies fall short for a number of reasons, and then Platonism mm-hmm. uh, comes really the closest uh, of all the philosophies. So when it comes to Augustine, <clears throat> is he a Platonist? Um, is he not a Platonist? And then once we kind of talk about that, I am interested in this new terminology of Christian Platonism that's yeah. been kind of floating around. We did an episode on it, um, and then we were talking about it beforehand. Yeah. Uh, and we're actually having Craig Carter on the show in January to talk about this. 
So we don't have to talk about it the whole time, but I'm just kind of curious on yeah. your thoughts. Yeah. Since I'll you spend be, a lot of time thinking about this. Yeah, I'll be general because it's a huge category, as we yeah. discovered earlier. And, and I'm curious. You brought up Craig Carter. I was just having lunch today with a guy who's, who's reading Carter's book on the great tradition and, and made this comment about Carter arguing for a, a Christian Platonism, which I'm curious about. I, I'm, I have some reticence to for, a variety, for probably some philosophical reasons, but I'm curious about And I, I think the biggest question for me is what exactly do we mean by that? And I think philosophers mean one thing. Theologians, if they're, if they're willing to use that term, mean something else. Or someone who's talking about the history of hermeneutics may mean something else. So I don't want to speak definitively on, on Carter's view because I don't quite understand what he's, what he's getting at. Here's my hunch, however. And, and I'll back back into your question about Augustine. My hunch is that anyone who's arguing for a, some type of a platonic worldview of early Christians, I think what they mean by that is that early Christians had what I'll think of as an enchanted worldview. Mm-hmm. They, they understood reality not in a mere naturalistic or I think what Car- the language Carter would use is Epicurean naturalism kind of thing. Um, they didn't understand reality in a mere naturalistic kind of way, that they approached the scriptures and approach all of life and reality with a mystery involved, with a sort of sacramental understanding to begin mm-hmm. with, and an enchanted understanding. In other words, they, they realized that there's more to reality than what the senses might tell them. So then the second that they read the scriptures, um, they can probably find a lot of continuity with that worldview and those, those presuppositions they may come to the text with and say the Gospel of John or the book of Hebrews, hmm. that all of a sudden they find, maybe they find quite a lot of synthesis there. Now, I want to be careful then saying that's Platonism, because I don't think that's what Platonism is. Uh, and I don't think necessarily that's what Augustine is doing either. But if what we mean by some sort of generic understanding of Christian Platonism is a kind of enchanted worldview from the get-go uh, that can allow for supernaturalism in the scriptures and even in life today, Absolutely. I'm, I'm for that. The only, I think the only problem I would have there is Platonism. <laughs> let's, yeah. let's call it something else. Yeah. What about Augustine then? Um, is Augustine a Platonist? First of all, it, it's, it's really Neoplatonism or what some would call Middle Platonism that, is the, that really is Augustine's day. What's interesting, though, is that Augustine doesn't seem to be concerned primarily with the, the issues that Middle Platonists would have been concerned about. What looks like is happening is that Augustine is, he is on a spiritual journey. He's looking for truth. He's looking for wisdom in particular. He is now, by his early 30s, being brought back full circle towards it might actually be found in Jesus. Mm. And part of what makes it possible, removes some barriers intellectually for him to, to return to the scriptures with a fresh eye to it, is that he has read the books, uh, what's called the Libri Platonicorum, which would, would be someone like Plotinus. So Plotinus is what is sort of the key figure for Neoplatonism. He lived several hundred years after Plato, but he takes some of Plato's ideas and stretches them further. For example, Plato famously known for um, the forms, the forms that are sort of, they're out there, that's what's most real. They're way up, up high, literally upstairs in the ether. And how those things relate to each other is not really clear. Um, But they are there, and then everything that we sense down here is some shadow of those real things up there, right? Um, Plotinus is going to come along and, and sort of, in my, what in my mind I think of is he's going to draw a circle around those things and, and say all of those things actually exist in a divine mind. Now, he's not going to call that the God of the Bible. He's just going to say it's a divine mind, and they relate to one another inside this divine mind that he calls the noose. And Augustine is then going to read that and say, I think there's a lot of truth there, but I think what you're calling the divine mind is actually God himself. Mm-hmm. And now he's going to depart significantly from Plotinus or from Platonic thought, however you want to label that. 
And this is in City of God, book eight. So this is a, one, of the, one of the best portions of City of God, probably the best portion of the first 10 books anyway, where he does uh, what we tell our History of Ideas students here. This is where Augustine walks you through the History of Ideas up to that point in his life. You open up City of God, book eight, and you realize this guy really has read everything. Like he is really well-informed, really well-educated. And he sort of walks you through key thinkers, key ideas, and so on, and then gets to the Platonists. And when, when he says the Platonists, he means the Neoplatonists. And he says, these are basically our closest kin philosophically. And then he says, you don't need to waste your time reading anybody else. This is who you need to cling to. But here's what people tend to forget. He spends the rest of that book critiquing the Platonists because he's not, he's not identifying Platonism and then equals Christianity at all. Mm-hmm. And in fact, early in his life, um, he is much more influenced, it seems, by Platonism than he is later on in his life. So when someone asks the question, is he a Platonist, it's complicated. Um, because I, I do think that there is a restrained kind of Platonism, uh, an echo. There's, I think there always remains the, the skeletal system of Neoplatonism or some kind of Platonic metaphysic that is at work. And there's always a limited kind of dualism that's at work in Augustine's thought that probably is still influenced mm-hmm. by, by Platonic influences there. Um, but by the, end, by the mature Augustine, is he a full-blown Platonist? I, I don't think that's true. I think what we have in Augustine is one who is thoroughly matured in his Christian thought and the skeletal system of a Neoplatonic philosophical influence never leaves him. Okay, so asking in asking that question, you know, we've been talking about Plato, Plotinus, and Middle Platonism and all those things. For our listeners who have no idea who those people are, yeah. what is the connection between uh, the life of the mind caring about things like that, things outside the Bible, things outside of Christianity, and our own vibrant love for Jesus. How does that connect? Yeah, good question. Let me answer that in two parts. So first of all, keeping in mind that Augustine is not only trained in sort of the, the best academies, let's think of it that way. He's, he, he's receiving uh, the upper, upper echelon uh, kind of education. And so even as, before he's a Christian, he is, he is working in those circles, right? He is well on his way. He's, he's receiving some of the highest chairs of rhetoric in the land. Uh, at just remarkably young ages and probably well on his way to, to great careers in politics. So in other words, he's engaging deeply in the world of ideas where he's at. The kind of things then that could be detrimental in the world of ideas at the at sort of high culture for Augustine's day, and, and it could be the same for us today, the things that could be detrimental for Christianity would be someone scoffing at the scriptures saying something like God's right arm or God's eyes or God's mouth, because surely if anyone is even halfway educated, they realize that there couldn't be any such thing as a deity who's actually contained by time and space or takes up space or could be measured by weight and number in this, in this same way that we understand things like you and I are. Um, and so for Augustine, Platonism actually made it possible for him to understand, and allegorical interpretation made it possible for him to read the Bible, believe the Bible, mm-hmm. and recognize, no, actually there's a more sophisticated way to read the Bible. So he was able then to make concrete connections with the ideas of his day and to push back against some of those sort of Christian accusations and allegations and defend the faith at that level. At the same time, when it comes to just teaching the Bible, so he, he is still at the end of the day a pastor, uh, against his will very much. So he, when he first becomes a Christian, he just wants to be a monastic. He wants to start a monastic community, but is basically forced into the pastor at work and then eventually becomes a bishop. Well, then how he reads the Bible and takes these concepts and, and drags them into and right up in front of his people, 
um, reading the Bible in a way that for him is influenced by allegorical interpretation, but not exclusively, but helping his people to see that the way that you read Paul, for example, in Galatians may be different than the way that you read Psalms. Mm -hmm. And being able to sort of pull together some of these kind of things and make concrete connections between whether it's the what we might think of as the lower echelon of Hippo, which is where he's bishop. It's not exactly the uh, center of high culture of the day, (laughs) but he's also not too far away from Carthage, which was a center of high culture for him in the day. And he's constantly making trips back and forth, defending the faith, arguing against the Pelagians or the Donatists or whoever that it is in various places, defending the faith there, but also coming back and delivering to the people using sophisticated methods that they usually don't even realize, but to give them Christ Mm. in the process. Yeah, I was going to ask you about what what Baptists could glean from Augustine in regards to interpreting the Bible, but you you kind of answered that there. I don't know if you have anything else you want to add. Yeah, let me be clear because I'm not saying Baptists should therefore all be allegorical interpreters <laughs> right. or whatever. Yeah, there's there's a long I mean, that's a whole another podcast yeah. as to Augustine's hermeneutical method and what he does. But let me just point back to on Christian doctrine or on Christian teaching his his handbook there. Um, one of the things that I think about almost every day, and I'm I'm a pastor as well, so I'm, I'm preparing messages as well as, you know, teaching in our, in our classes here. Um, one thing that I think about almost every day is there's a line in Augustine's On Christian Teaching, I'll paraphrase, but it basically says, <clears throat> any interpretation of Scripture that does not undergird love for God and love for neighbor is an invalid interpretation. And I, I was like you, Jordan. The first time I read that, I thought, why has no one told me that before? Because that <laughs> makes all the sense in the world, right? And why can't that be our starting point or a starting point for hermeneutics? Mm-hmm. Um, instead of a variety of other places that we might start for a technique or a method in hermeneutics, why not start with recognizing that Jesus said the most important thing in the world is to love God and love other people? So why not let that be our starting point when we, when we open the scriptures mm-hmm. and then prepare to teach those? And so Augustine haunts me there every day uh, in very good ways. And I would, I would tell Baptists or anybody else, for that yeah. matter, um, let that be a lesson to all of us, you know, and let that inform the way that we, we do our work. Yeah, that's good. You got anything else or you want to wrap up? Yeah, no, I guess, you know, I, I do want to ask. I don't, I, I don't want to go on forever on this because I know this is probably your, your favorite area of Augustine to talk about, which is wisdom. Um you mentioned, I think you have an article in Southeastern's Journal from however many years ago talking about the difference between knowledge and wisdom in Augustine. Yeah. What is, what is, what is the difference for him, and is that um, different than how we typically parse out the two, and what does that mean for us practically speaking? Yeah, good question. I, I don't know how we typically parse those two out. I suppose okay. that would be different person to person. For Augustine, so one of his great works, I didn't mention it earlier, but one of his great works um, is called On the Trinity, or De Trinitate. And it was it was really important for that time, because Augustine lives between, so Augustine, born in 354, he's not converted until 386. So think about the ecumenical councils. you got Constantinople in 381, but then you don't have another ecumenical council until 431, hmm. and, he, and he's dead by that point, yeah. right? You know, 354 to 430 is when he dies. Um, so he lives right in the middle of those, and and his impact, his influence is remarkable, but he's not at any one of those ecumenical councils. Mm-hmm. He's at other regional councils and mm-hmm. doing different things, um, but those ecumenical councils, he's not there. Now, keep in mind, think about what's going on. From Nicaea to Constantinople, how does the Son relate to the Father? It's, it's distinctly Trinitarian. The farther we, though, get from Ephesus to Chalcedon, it becomes distinctly Christological. Mm-hmm. It's especially concerned with how do we understand the person of Jesus? How, how can the incarnation be possible, and how do we articulate that faithfully? Well, what's interesting is that Augustine 
he delivers to us, he gives us this whole long treatise on the Trinity, 15 books worth of the Trinity. Uh, in, in fact, interesting fact, um, Augustine's become so influential um, by, by sort of his mature age that an early version, an incomplete and early version of the work was stolen and distributed. And he was furious about it, of course, because he's, he's working through this. Mm-hmm. He, you know, it takes him, some of these works, he'll, he'll spend 15, 20, 30 years writing these things. He wants wow. to be so careful. In fact, uh, around the time he finishes the Confessions, he makes a comment somewhere. Uh, he makes a comment. Anyone would be crazy to take up a work like on the Trinity. It's not too long after that he takes <laughs> it up, but it takes him a long time to finish it. He does so, though, because he sees it so necessary for the Christian community worldwide. Why he doesn't give us a treatise on Christology, no one knows. But he buries a Christology in the middle of that mm-hmm. on the Trinity. Now, Jordan, I'm getting to your question about wisdom, because keep in mind, his, his entire sort of spiritual journey has been set on fire for the search for wisdom. By the time he's converted in the garden, as we talked about earlier, by the time he's converted... Um, one French scholar says that all the sapiential stars aligned for Augustine, and he recognizes right then that Jesus is the wisdom he'd been looking for the whole time. But, but when he talks about wisdom, when Augustine will bring this up in De Trinitate, he, he means something much deeper than what we typically mean by, I sat talked with my granddad and gleaned wisdom from mm-hmm. him. Now, that's no less true that we gleaned wisdom mm-hmm. from those who may be older and more experienced than we are. But for Augustine, when Paul says that Jesus is the power and wisdom of God, and that in him all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found. He really, really believes that. So then he, he deep dives into this conversation about the distinction between scientia, the Latin word for knowledge, which we translate science in our day, mm-hmm. scientia and sapientia. And so in this book on De Trinitate, books 12 through 14, although he has this, this thick Christological piece around books 5 through 8, um, but he'll deep dive into this scientia or scientia sapientia thing in books 12 to 14, basically saying there's a difference between these things, even though they're related. And ultimately, they come to full manifestation in the person of Jesus. And the only way that these things, the only way that all of reality, you talked about metaphysics earlier mm-hmm. in Christian Platonism, the only way that all of reality can hold together in Augustine's mind is if the incarnation happens. Mm. Because in, for Augustine's mindset, just the way that he understands reality, both seen and unseen, is that there is this sort of three-story reality. The highest story uh, is where God exists, right? And that's, and that's where even in his um, spiritual journey, in his spirituality, he talks so much about contemplation and our pilgrimage and our ascension. He uses that language often because he wants us in our Christian lives to be ascending towards God. I actually want to critique that a little bit, but nevertheless, that's how he talks about it, because he understands God to be up there, mm-hmm. and that we ought to be ascending through the person of the Son by way of the Spirit, and the, the more that we ascend in contemplation to the Lord, the more that we reflect the image of God as we ought to, right? But he also understands sapientia to be up there, and scientia to be down here. Mm-hmm. So scientia is at the bottom level, it's in the realm of action, in the, wor- in the wor- uh, world of of sounds and noises and interaction with one another, the material, physical world. But he's not in that process downplaying the material world. He's saying, look, the material things that are around us actually are sacramental because they're pointing us up to the one who is the most real. They're pointing us up to the one who is wisdom. And, and understanding then that scienti, our science or knowledge, uh, becomes a means by which we actually move more towards God. And then connect that with the fact that in Jesus are found all the treasures of scientia and sapientia, which means without Jesus, this is how Augustine puts the whole thing together, that without Jesus, as what I think of as the conjunction and the conduit, 
have to be careful though there because there's some there's some Eutychian issues if you're not careful. Mm. But the conjunction of the conduit for all things about the Christian life, if Jesus is not the scientia and the sapientia, we have no hope. And so for Augustine, if that linchpin comes out, the whole cathedral falls apart in, in terms of his thought, his his sort of scaffolding. Mm. Well, well, I love that. Um, before I wrap up, I do want to ask, um, off the top of your head, do you have any um, recommendations on, I guess, biographies or interactions with Augustine that would be, these are some go-to ones that people should definitely be reading? So Peter Brown wrote the greatest biography on Augustine I think still ever written. Um, I'd be happy to be taking a task on that, but not many would disagree with that. So Peter Brown's um, Augustine of Hippo, I think the first edition of this came out in 1968. Fun backstory on that. Peter Brown is at Oxford, supposed to be doing his DPhil on something completely different, but falls in love with Augustine and is hiding in the corner of the Bodleian Library, writing writing what will become one of the definitive, if not the definitive biography wow. on Augustine when he's supposed to be writing his dissertation. <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> and he, by the way, never finished his PhD or his DPhil. He never finished it. And in the process, Peter Brown invents a field of study called late antiquity. And mm. it begins with this great work of Augustine. So it's now in third or fourth edition. Uh, so Peter Brown's bar, and he's just a brilliant writer. So you, you really have to have to get that. Um, in addition to that, you know, there's there's pe- people who are writing on all types of Augustine's thought, and because he's engaged in the philo- philosophical community and theological community and biblical studies and education and psychology, he's engaged on all of these mm-hmm. things. You know, there's there's key figures throughout. Um, the people that I enjoy reading. Lewis Ayers, uh, mm-hmm. he was one of my supervisors for my PhD work. He's particularly uh, uh, interested in Augustine's theological work and his Trinitarian stuff. Um, but Lewis is also doing more work, I think, on even uh, he's supervising doctorates on things like Augustine's work in the Psalms. Uh, so a guy named Jason Biassi uh, has written on Augustine's work in the Psalms, thinking about hermeneutics and theology and Christological interpretation there. Um, and then there's others doing more popular level stuff like Jamie Smith. I really mm-hmm. do like, and I think he's doing a good job of, of taking Augustine's thought and not always telling you, but he is, uh, I, th- I think he has re-endeared many in the Christian community to Augustine's thought, but he never told, or he rarely told them. Mm. Um, and I think a lot of people actually will come back around full circle and, and begin deep into fresh mm. uh, studies in Augustine as a result of that. That's cool. Well, man, we, I know I've had a, pl- a blast and yeah, a pleasure it's been great. Uh, talking to you about this. I've learned a lot, and I definitely think this has been the coolest atmosphere we've recorded in. Usually it's in my house. <laughs> Not as cool. <laughs> uh, very uh, much more mood lighting in here. So yeah. uh, it's been a blast to have you on. We'll light the candle next time <laughs> just, to get it, just to get it better. Yeah, that's right. Maybe, uh, I don't know if they let you smoke pipes in here, but you know that would really give it the C.S. Lewis type feel. I better not say. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, anyway, um, we really had a good time, as I mentioned, and I, I know our listeners have as well. And for those of you ha- who have been listening, you've been listening to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast that exists, to my knowledge. And we've been able to talk with Dr. Benjamin Quinn on the, who Augustine is as the man and some of his ideas. Uh, and we really had a good time doing it. So we look forward to uh, hearing your comments and your thoughts and your feedback uh, from the episode.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.